0: And we will continue our study through the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 4. So I'm calling this series, Following Jesus, Leading Like Moses. Because Exodus is so full of rich material for leadership development. And of course, as Christians who believe that Moses is a type of which Christ is the fulfillment, we ultimately are looking to Jesus and we're following Him, and yet there's so much, humanly speaking, to be learned about leadership from the life of Moses. I want to comment again. Just I've said this a few times, but I want to remind you because I know immediately when we focus on leadership, some people disqualify themselves. They hear, oh, this is about leadership, so it doesn't apply to me. Because I'm not a boss of a company, uh, I'm, I'm not a parent, I'm not this, I'm not that. But let me just remind you, in some way or another, all of these things will be for you. Because leaders are influencers, and everyone is influencing somebody else. If not in a lifelong role, then perhaps in a moment in time, in a particular task or function or situation, you are a person of influence, perhaps significant influence to somebody else. And so I want you all to hear yourselves as being qualified this morning as leaders in a general sense, in that you are influencing others, and so you're responsible to be the best kind of influence you can possibly be. I also want to remind you that when I give you these three points from Exodus 4 about leadership, all three points are what all Christians should do. And one of the things that marks out Christian leaders from those who aren't leaders is simply their examples of what all believers should be. If you look at the qualification for elder, for example, barring the exception of the gift of teaching, every qualification is not peculiar to a spiritual elder. They're actually typical or supposed to be of every Christian. When it says an elder is not supposed to be a drunk or an alcoholic, does that mean you get to be? You're like, oh good, I'm glad that's the pastor's job because I'm getting drunk this weekend. No, sorry, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are to be full of the influence of the Spirit and not overcome by alcohol. Qualification for elders says the pastor should not be a brawler. Wow, so as long as I don't go around picking fights, like, hey, is that my coffee? What, do, what are you doing with my coffee? Pshh. And you're like, good, I'm glad that's the pastor because I love picking fights with people when I leave church on the way out of the parking lot. If you look at the qualifications, it's actually remarkable how unremarkable they are. It's simply an example of what basic Christianity looks like with the exception of the added gift of teaching. So when I say leader, leaders are simply people that they've got this. They understand this. They're taking responsibility for this. But even if you feel like you're not quite there, trust me, as a follower of Jesus, or if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, but you're considering it, I would point out to you that this is basic Christianity. These are things that all of us would be called to do if we were going to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we're going to look at Exodus Chapter 4 this morning, I am going to read the chapter. I know a lot of churches don't read lots of Scripture anymore because our attention spans have apparently plummeted. But I'm going to read chapter 4. And the passage will be on the screen behind me. And then we'll see what the Lord has to teach us about leadership this morning. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me, Or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. "...that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh." Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, Please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning... And we believe that not only are these words true, but they are life. And so we pray that through Your Holy Spirit this morning that You would form us into the image of Christ. We pray that You would form us into the kind of leaders and influencers that point people to Jesus. And so we just pray that whatever failure, whatever disobedience, whatever resistance, whatever rebellion might be in our hearts this morning, we pray that You would heal us. We pray You would forgive us. We pray You would release us. And we pray You would empower us so that we can do Your will and fulfill the call of God that is on our lives. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Exodus chapter 4 is basically part two of what we call the call narrative. A call narrative is a well-known portion of Scripture in which God appears in some way, shape, or form, and he meets a person who's in one particular season of life. They think their life is all about paying the bills Waking up, driving down the freeway, dropping the kids off at sports, picking them up, going to work, clocking in, clocking out, going to the doctor, going to the grocery store, check out, check out, check your bills, make sure somebody didn't scam your debit card. And they think that's all life is. And then the call of God comes. And suddenly you realize that what you thought life was all about was wrong. The call of God is a life-changing moment. And it becomes defining of every person's life. In the way we view our lives, we wait certain seasons of life. We wait certain situations as being most important. Some of us might look back to when we were 20 or 30 and say, those were the most important years of my life. Those were the best years. That's when I had no nagging knee injuries from football. That's before I started losing sleep and wrestling with insomnia and having to go to the doctor. This was before this family member passed away. This is before this person betrayed me and left me on the side of the road, bleeding in my heart. And we say, that was when the best time of my life was. But God looks at your life differently. For God, whatever came before His call on your life is not the important part of your life. No matter what you think, and no matter what anyone else thinks. And this is stated explicitly in various ways throughout the Bible, but right here in Exodus 4, it is stated implicitly. The man Moses was blessed with a long life. He lived 120 years. And you might think the first 40 years of his life were the most significant. Maybe it took him a while. Maybe Moses, like some of us, was a slow starter. So it wasn't the first 40 that were the most important. It was the second 40. But when you look at Scripture, we are given a different sense of priority. Scripture devotes, guess how many chapters to the first eighty years of Moses' life? One. Exodus chapter two is devoted to the first eighty years of Moses' life. Exodus one gives you the backstory. Moses isn't even born. Guess how many chapters are devoted to the last. 40 years from 80 to 120 in moses life 135 chapters why is one chapter given to the first 80 and i don't think growing up in pharaoh's house is a small thing as far as the world is concerned growing up in the white house and thinking oh that was just a blip on the radar no big deal The difference is the call of God. Whatever comes before the call of God does not matter in the big picture of redemptive history. What matters in one's life is not when, but that the call of God takes place in your heart. For some of us, this may have happened very early on. And I thank God for that. If you can honestly look me in the eye and say, I was called at three. And some people tell me that. I don't know that I can remember back that far. Some of you, maybe it was five or eight or 13 or 15. But there might be some this morning who have not yet heard the call of God. And they're approaching the end of their life. And they're thinking to themselves, it's too late. What what matters is what's behind me. But I just want to tell you this morning, if this is you, it's the call of God that matters. It's the call of God that gives worth to your life. It's the call of God that ensures that what you do in life will echo in eternity. It is the call of God that matters. And that means today is the day. Today is the day that if you hear the voice of God, that you do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the wilderness, because it is the call of God that matters. What comes before will be forgotten. But your response to God's call on your life will determine your destiny. And so I just want to point that out for you this morning. How significant this idea of the call of God, responding to the voice of the Spirit, following the Lord Jesus Christ as the meaning and purpose of your life. That you do that is really the beginning of life. This, of course, is summed up in what Jesus would say to John, or to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He talked about the need to be born again. And it's the idea that you need a whole new life, that the life before cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so it's new birth through trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross that gives us new life. And that is day one of responding to the call of God. And if we continue to do this, if we respond to the call of God, it is not all over on a given day. It is not respond to Jesus today and and everything will be fine. And there will be no problems. And there will be no trials. And there will be no difficulties. And things will be easy. And your weaknesses will automatically disappear or become strengths. I'm not going to tell you that. But what I can tell you is that if you respond to the call of God, God will honor that faith, that trust with the Spirit of grace who will enable you to become the man or woman of influence that He wants you to be. And so let me share three of those lessons that we see here on responding to the call of God and becoming men and women of influence. Number one. Leaders must learn to trust in the Lord's validation of them. Look at verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. You are going to desire validation. We all desire validation. Validation. And one of the most important things that a spiritual leader can learn is that you cannot depend on the validation of people. Now, to some extent, it is good and right and necessary that you receive at least some of it, some of the time. That's even a part of us discerning, what am I good at? What am I called to do? What am I not called to do? That's a part of it. But one of the things Moses is going to have to learn, ultimately, it is not the people that validate me, it is God himself. This is a lesson that the Lord is teaching Moses at the very beginning. Because we're going to see later in the story, it doesn't matter how qualified Moses is. It doesn't matter what great things he's done in the past. It doesn't matter how much he's proved himself as a leader in the past. It doesn't matter what amazing gifts he's had. There will be times when the people will turn against him. And they will even say to the man or woman whom God has called, we don't want you to be our leader. And when that day comes, if you build your leadership solely on the foundation of the validation of people, your leadership will crumble. Because you will look at them and you will say to them, you are the one who decides whether I am a leader or not. But in God's economy, it is His call that matters most. It is the call of God that is a foundation that is firm and lasting and that can weather the storm of public opinion because like the weather, it changes. We need validation of the Lord in our lives. And when I say the validation of the Lord, I mean it in such a way that it is seen that it is the Lord who is validating them. Because that's what we have here in this text. The three particular things given here are not arbitrary, but they are very relevant. They are contextual. They have meaning for the people of Egypt. Number one, The Lord's going to validate Moses by having his staff turn into a snake and back again. We know from historical studies that snake charmers were prevalent in Egypt at this time. And you've got to remember that in their worldview, they didn't have a naturalistic explanation for how you can charm a poisonous cobra. But there were those who were skilled in the art of snake charming, And it was said of them that they could so charm a serpent that it would freeze like a rod. Isn't that interesting? These magicians in Egypt were seen as having some of the power of the gods because these snakes who would scare everyone else did not scare these charmers and that they could become motionless. So what God is doing here, He's appealing to what this culture understands power to look like, but He one-ups it. He says, you think it's a great act when you take a snake and get it to stop moving, how about I reverse it? I'll take a staff that is not a stake, it's an inanimate object, it cannot move, I'll turn it into a snake and then I'll turn it back again. This is going to show when you go and you say that the Lord, Yahweh, has sent me, you will know that this is not one of the Egyptian gods. It is the Lord. The second thing he tells him to do is put his hand into his bosom or his tunic, his garment, and to pull it out again. Moses does this and his hand becomes, what the text says, leprous. Now, leprous is, is not a price, precise medical diagnosis. It's a catch-all phrase. Any of you that have had babies, I know for us with Michael Jr., love him. He's 13. He didn't let me sleep for a year. I'm just going to whine for a minute. Um, so yeah, Michael Jr., he's 13 now, but when he was born, he literally slept for less than two hours a night. We took him into the doctor and he was literally in the bottom one percentile of total hours slept in 24 hour periods. And he did that for a year and he would scream bloody murder all night. And when we would take him into the doctor and we did this multiple times and they just said, oh, it's colic. And then we're like, oh, that sounds like a precise medical diagnosis. And then I found out. It's like we don't know what it is. He's like gassy. We don't know what's causing it. We're going to call it that. Here, take some drops. Normally it helps, but not always, because we're really not sure what it is. It's a catch-all phrase. The word leprosy here was a word that was a catch-all to describe any number of incurable skin diseases. So it could have been various ones. But what was acknowledged is that these things were incurable but the Egyptians also believed that because there were gods and they had supernatural powers, one of the things that gods could do was heal. And so when Moses puts his hand into his garment and pulls it out, he is showing that the Lord is the one who has true healing power. And the fact that leprosy was prevalent in Egypt at this time, it would show that even though perhaps, in their opinion, the gods could at times heal, the fact is they seemed relatively powerless or unable or unwilling to heal these people with leprosy. And yet, here's this man Moses putting his hand in, pulling it out, having leprosy and being cured whenever he wants. It is showing that the Lord is God that He is the one who ultimately is the healer. And then the last sign, of course, is the water from the Nile. The river is the Nile. It is the river. So important is the Nile that in Egyptian religion and culture, the Nile was a god. The name Hapi for the god was synonymous with the river itself. It was the river that gave life. And so they actually worshipped the Nile as a god. And so when the Lord tells Moses to take water from the Nile and pour it and it will become blood, this thing that gives life is becoming death in their eyes. What the Lord is saying that is that He is God. That the so-called gods of the Nile, the gods of Egypt, are not the true gods. Once again, the Lord is God. God. So when I say the leader must learn to trust in the Lord's validation of them, I don't only mean that you cannot trust in the public approval and opinion of others at all times and in all places, but I am also saying that the manner in which the Lord validates you is equally important that He must so validate you that others, if they're willing to see, if they are not blinded by total unbelief, they will confess it's the Lord who is raising you up. The leader must learn to trust in the Lord's validation of them. Number two, leaders must believe that the Lord is greater than our inabilities. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Everyone has weaknesses. Everyone has weaknesses, both perceived and actual. And those are two different things. There's no such thing as a leader who has no weaknesses. If you've had the privilege of being around a really, truly great person, and I mean kind of like on a historical level, and I've been around some, some pretty amazing people, And because they're so gifted in a particular area, and God has so blessed and multiplied their efforts in certain ways, I've seen how it's a common tendency for people to believe that therefore that leader must have no weaknesses. That they have all the gifts in and of themselves, and that all the success that you see is due solely to that one person. And I can say time and time again, both from personal experience, from the Scriptures, and from historical studies of biographies of the great leaders of history, there was never a leader without a weakness. In fact, many times, the best leaders are leaders that either are able to learn to overcome their weaknesses, or they simply acknowledge them and learn to bring others into their lives who were gifted where they were weak. Leaders must learn to believe that the Lord is greater than our inabilities. Now, Moses may or may not have had a speech impediment. How many of you heard that this text says Moses had a speech impediment? Raise your hand. Have you heard that before? Okay. Well, I grew up hearing that. It may be true. I'm actually not sure. There's a case to be made on both sides. So, what's going on here? Either Moses genuinely had a speech impediment of some sort. Some people think he was a stutter or something like that. The strength to that argument is the particular language used here in the Hebrew. It talks about a, a heavy tongue, a tongue that kind of gets tied. But then again, sometimes people who don't have a speech impediment, you just get nervous. And by the way, public speaking still, when they do polls, is one of the top fears next to death that people have. Public speaking causes great fear to most, if not all, people. On the other hand, some suggest that Moses does not have a speech impediment, but rather he perceives that he does. He's scared. Now, to add to this would be basically to view the rest of the Torah. Read the next four books of the Torah and what you'll see is Moses speaks publicly quite a bit. And when he does so, there's no sign of inability. He seems to be a great orator. At least that's what it appears. And so when I'm wrestling over a interpretational decision. Well, did he have a speech impediment or did he not? I'm thinking about it textually. I think it can be either. And for our application, I want to leave both of those as possibilities. The reason I want to do that is because both matter. Many of us, perhaps all of us in this room, are not doing some things God wants us to do, either because A, we have a genuine weakness or inability It's true. It's actually true. And you say, well, Lord, I'm not good at this. I I don't have the time, the energy, the money. I, I can't do that. Yet God is calling you to do it anyway. And God here is reminding Moses, look, who's the one who made the world and everything in it? You can say rightly, I don't have enough. I can't do it. I can't keep going. I don't have this in me. I literally don't have it available right now. And yet, we're reminded with this text that God is the God who created the world out of nothing. There's nothing too hard for God. So, when you, pers- when you have an actual inability or weakness, but you know, on the other hand, God has called you to do it, You can trust in the God who is able to be with you and to enable you supernaturally by his power, by his grace, to fulfill the calling on your life. You can trust him to do that. But the second thing I've learned, even in my own life, is perhaps equally important, maybe more. And that is not actual inability, but perceived inability some of you might have been told when you were young you are not good at this some have been told you will never amount to anything this down here is where you will always be and you believe that about yourself and the truth is Even naturally speaking, it may be that God has made you to do this. That you actually now have the ability. You could do it. You could put the time in. You could be successful. You could rise to the occasion. You could face that challenge. You could take that on. But somewhere along the way, you got a wrong perception of who you actually are. Now again, I know, we're in a church. And we're all well aware of how dangerous pride can be. But as one pastor said, I've seen discouragement ruin more people than pride. I'm not sure I'd go that far. I've seen pride ruin a lot of people. But I will say, it is certainly a number far too high of people who weren't crushed by pride but by discouragement. They simply told themselves day after day, year after year, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I'm not gifted. I'm not talented. I'll never get there. And I want to remind you, whether it was actual or perceived, the point is that if God calls us, we are able Can you say that with me? If God calls me, I am able. One more time. If God calls me, I am able. Moses is needing to learn this lesson. That God will enable him to do what he is called to do. But notice the abounding grace of God. Moses is not happy with the answer you wonderful people just gave. Moses' initial answer is not, with God I am able. It is, Lord, if I can paraphrase, get someone else. Have you ever said, Lord, get someone else? Raise your hand. I'm not going to start counting because my hand would stay up for a while. Lord, that's very sweet of you. Thanks for thinking of me. Go send someone else. God's grace is so abundant that even when Moses says, Look, I know you're God, I know you're able to make me able, send someone else anyway. And don't get me wrong rebellion even as a believer it's it is not excusable we are not to say well i'm saved by grace so i can just disobey all day long it says in the text god was angry he's not happy when we refuse to do what he's called us to do but notice that even though moses ends up in flat out disobedience on this point telling God to send someone else, God graciously supplies a co-leader, a ministry partner whose gifts complement his weakness. This is grace. This is God condescending to our lowly estate, seeing that we are hung up on our inabilities, perceived or actual, and He will send people into our lives at the right time. Not before, and not too late. At the right time, He will send people into our lives that can partner with us in our call. This is what the gifting of the Spirit to believers in the church is all about as you study spiritual gifts in the New Testament, you find out everyone in Christ, everyone is gifted for ministry. There's no person in the body of Christ whom the Spirit passed over. That did happen in the Old Testament. The Spirit would come upon some and not on others. The Spirit would come upon someone but then leave them later. One of the beauties of the covenant we have in Christ is the pervasive, abiding, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit on the life of all of God's people. And it says that the Spirit gives gifts as He wills, not as you will. And the gifts are in Greek, charismata, Which means grace gifts, which tells us we didn't do anything to earn it. So, someone is neither better nor worse than anyone else for possessing a grace gift, or else you have misunderstood what in the world God gave you in the first place. It is a gift of grace, there's no ground for boasting in giftedness in the church. Rather, gifts are to humbly serve one another. And God diversifies His gifts. And I think it's intentional because God wants all of His people to come together as one. And let's be honest. If you had all the gifts in and of yourself and lacked nothing, would you be here today? Would you seriously go to church? Would you put up with other people and their shortcomings, and their sins, and their failures, and their complaints, would you put up with that? I probably wouldn't, to be honest. You're all great, but I wouldn't. (laughs) The truth is, I need the body of Christ every bit as much as you do. I do not have all the gifts. I have very few gifts. I've learned how few I have by being in pastoral ministry. I thought I was better at more things. And over time, I'm like, nope, 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 nope. But then I've seen the Lord send people to the church who are gifted in this. And having seen how I'm not gifted, I go, wow, that is so amazing. You didn't think your gift was a big deal? It's not a public gift? It's not one that everybody sees, it's not visible, it's invisible, it's behind the scenes, and yet I see them come along and I go, that is just, that blows my mind, it is so incredible. You have no idea how much I value you because I don't have that. And I've learned how vital it is, like an organ that you don't see. People see your clothes, they see kind of your outward appearance, they don't know what your heart or your lungs or your arteries, what those look like, and how vital is it to have healthy organs. It is absolutely vital. Everyone's participation and functioning and health in the church for the benefit of the whole matters. And so God has gifted every one of you. When we are weak, we simply look at that weakness as an opportunity for the Lord to bring in someone who is strong in that area. That is gifted in that area. And when we see a weakness in somebody else, rather than looking down on them and saying, well, I'm superior to you, I'm better than you, gosh, why aren't you gifted like me? We simply see this is an amazing opportunity for me to humble myself, gird a towel like Jesus, and wash the feet of the people He's put in my life. That is what the gifting and call of God is for. We must believe that the Lord is greater than our inabilities and that He is able to send those into our lives who complement our lack. Lastly, point number three. Leaders must never believe they can lead without the grace of God. There is the real temptation for a spiritual leader to believe that because they are leading others, that they themselves have arrived. Time and time again this happens. It can happen in all forms of leadership, but I think spiritual leadership is particularly dangerous. It can be hazardous to your health. If you do not allow the simple gospel of grace to humble you every day, a spiritual leader can come to what they perceive as a platform that excuses them from the responsibilities and the love and the care and the concern and the need to work hard every day simply at being a follower of Jesus. So much attention in our culture and in the American church is given to gifts. We worship gifts. Rather than gifts of worship, we worship gifts. We worship gifted persons. But gifts are ruined for lack of character. It's like money. You can print more of it, but what is it worth? It used to be backed up by something, right? Like that's how you knew it was worth something. It was backed up by gold, or it was backed up by silver. It was backed up by something, otherwise, it's just paper. That's what character is to gifts. We don't give attention to character. We give attention to personality. We have many cults of personality. And churches, again, for better or worse, it's not like I'm I'm saying people aren't maybe gifted in that, but again, character is what matters. I used to just be in awe of celebrity personalities, including celebrity pastors with amazing gifts of oratory, great senses of humor, great charisma, and great presence. I still appreciate those things, by the way. But I'm no longer enamored by them. I will take a sweet, loving, kind, unselfish person any day of the week over a person like that. Somebody that is kind, compassionate, And loyal, that's what matters most. And we need to create a church that honors character. We care about gifting, absolutely. It's a part of how the Lord leads us to form ourselves as a church. But we don't worship gifts here. We worship God. And as we worship God, we become like God. That's how you know you're actually worshiping God. You start becoming like Him. And when we're becoming like Him, we will be seen as the loving, kind, patient, forgiving, self-sacrificing, grateful, generous people that the Spirit produces. And those are the kinds of things that maybe they're not the number one thing people are looking for when they go to a church or even when they get into a dating relationship or anything else. Trust me, these are the things that last. These are the things you can build a life on. We must never forget that leaders cannot lead without the grace of God. We can even look at this What is otherwise, and I think it still is, a strange scenario in verses 24 through 26 where we see that the Lord is about to kill the great leader Moses before he's even embarked on his exodus. It says, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is going on there? There's details that confuse everybody. Just to let you know, scholars, the the language, even the grammar is a little bit awkward, so it's, it's a little bit funny. But I'll tell you what's happening. Moses is called to be a leader. And you typically expect leaders, all the basics, that should just be done. You just do all the normal stuff. And then we expect you to do spectacular stuff on top of that. Moses is sent by God to go lead his covenant people. Underline that word. Covenant. He's going to bring out His covenant people and He has not even obeyed the most basic command that any Israelite knows to obey. It's the one everyone knows to obey. It was the sign given to Abraham that your firstborn son will be circumcised and set apart for me. And Moses had not done what any good Israelite dad should have done. Moses failed as a spiritual leader in his own home. This amazing man Moses, and sometimes we'll take leaders who make mistakes and we'll chuck them. That's the other thing. we got a disposable relationship culture. On the one end, you can worship leaders and put them on the pedestal. The other times, we just use them and throw them away when they make a mistake. I think what we have in Scripture regarding Moses is a great leader. One of the greatest leaders in human history. Greatest leaders. And you're wise to look at his life. And yet, he is a man who sinned. He's a man who could make a mistake. He's a man that could actually fail in a fundamental way that everyone else would know not to do. They've already obeyed, and here, Moses, the man of God, already violating step number one. Even this man, Moses, cannot lead without the grace of God. And we actually see that it's his wife, Zipporah, when the husband is supposed to fill his role as a spiritual leader, but as we all know, doesn't always happen. And when Moses fell down as the spiritual leader of his home, his wife steps up. It's Zipporah who honors the covenant of God. And I know it's kind of gross, but when she throws the foreskin, I know, man, weird world, but throws the foreskin in his feet and says, you're a, a Bridegroom of blood to me, it's the idea that she is redeeming Moses from sin through blood. Through bloodshed, she is fulfilling the covenant on behalf of her family. She is buying Moses back from his own sin. The wife is rising to the occasion. She's not taking over positionally, but we know we're human. And great leaders, both in the home and in the church, will make mistakes and they will fail. And we are to rise to the occasion. We are to cover one another. Not cover up, but cover one another. To reveal that which is wrong in each other and lovingly enable one another to grow in the grace of God. Not even the great Moses can lead the people out of Egypt without the grace of God from beginning to to end. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know that we have only scratched the surface of the power and the grace and the life lessons of the life of Moses. But Lord, I thank you so much for this man I'm even thankful for his imperfections that I can look at a great leader and say that I don't have to be perfect and without any flaws in order to be used greatly by you. I don't have to be somebody who when the call of God comes that I always give the right answer the first time. That even like Moses, that a man or woman who argues with God and says send someone else I can't do this, that Lord, we are not disqualified by such things, but Scripture show us that your grace invites us in. Lord, I pray for your spirit of wisdom to be upon us. I believe we are living in an age full of knowledge and an utter bankruptcy of wisdom. The internet may be the friend of information, but as some say, it is the enemy of thought. People don't know how to live anymore. They don't know how to lead. They don't know how to follow. And I believe that you want to use your church in America in this moment In this cultural epic time of change, you want to use your church, your people as leaders in a lost world. So Lord, show us the urgency of the call of God on our lives. Teach us to lead day by day, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. Not just in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary and the mundane. Teach us what it means to follow Jesus and to lead like Moses. We pray that You would use us in the time allotted to each one of us to make a difference for eternity. As Daniel says, those who are wise will shine like the stars in the heavens and the firmament forever. Lord, help us to so live that our stars shine in eternity. I pray now for your blessing on this time of response. May it be from the heart and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.